If you'd open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Once again, let's bow and let's ask for the Lord's blessing as we spend time in his word. Father, again, we do thank you again for your presence and again for the gift of your word. We thank you, Father, for preserving it for us and allowing us, Father, to live in a place where really all of us can have our own copy of of your word. In fact, Lord, many of us have more than one copy. And we have it, Father, in, in different translations to help us to be able to understand your word and what it is that you're communicating to us. Father, we ask that even though we, there is an abundance of, your, of copies of your word available to us, we pray that we would never view it as being something that is common. We pray, Lord, that we would always recognize the great value that it is. That, Father, we would always cherish it. And that, Father, we would do more than just simply physically care for the Bibles that we carry. But, Father, we'll have a great love and admiration for your word itself. And there will be the desire of our heart to absorb your word, to read your word, to hear your word. Father, again, we may be changed as, Father, we recognize that it is the main uh, tool that your Spirit uses to conform us to the image of your Son, Christ. And so, Father, as always, we ask now that you would help us, Lord, as we seek to understand those things that Paul was saying and what it was he was dealing with. The Father, we may grow by it. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 4. Again, Paul writes, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. And to another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. Last week, as we were looking at verses 8 and 9, again, we want to make sure we understand what's going on here. Uh, And again, we saw that the person or persons to whom the word of wisdom or the utterance of wisdom and the word of knowledge are given, uh, those are gifts of one kind. And that is based on the word uh, that is used for another, which is heteros. And then when he moves on, after faith, the word another uh, is, again, uh, heteros, and then after that, there's a group of, of uh, gifts, gifts of healing, working in miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, and discerning of spirits, and the word used for another is the word alos. And so it seems then that Paul has kind of categorized all those gifts into one grouping. And so we, we are looking at it this way to try to make sure we really grasp uh, what Paul is seeking to communicate here. And we'll see that as we kind of go into more detail. Uh, concerning each one of these. The the first one we're dealing with, which we started last week, is he talked about the giving of faith. And he didn't use the word gift. He didn't say that he would give them the gift of faith. He talked about giving them faith. And the idea here is that out of the well of faith come all of these other gifts that he's mentioned. So a person grows in their faith, and we began to talk about how the word faith is used in the Bible to make sure that we really have a good grasp of what he's talking about here. Because if we misunderstand this, then we're going to misunderstand the gift, and I also believe misunderstand the other gifts that he's talking about. So we saw that when it comes to faith, and we talked about growing in faith or increasing our faith, um, it it comes from you and I 
uh, basically having a greater understanding of the number of biblical propositions in which we believe. In other words, the, the more we know about the Word of God, the more we're going to grow or the greater our faith is going to be. So it's not so much that we have more faith in, let's say, one proposition or one statement in Scripture. It is because we've become convinced of additional truths. So what we kind of want to stay away from is this idea. For example, we'll say, well, someone may say, well, do you believe the Lord can, can heal you? And we may say, well, yeah, I know I, I really need to believe that more. Now, m stating it that way, one way it's wrong and one way it can be correct. So the idea that we really need to believe that one thing more, I don't think is a correct way of understanding faith. I believe that what we, what we should mean is, is I do want to believe that more, but I'm going to become, in a sense, I guess you would say convinced because I'm learning more things about God. In other words, it's kind of like the relationship we have with people. The, the more that you get to know an individual and the more you can trust them, the more you can trust them with everything. Maybe even including the first thing that you were trusting them with. Uh, you, you hire an employee and let's say it's a small company and, and so you are in a sense trusting that individual to come to work on time. Simple thing, you're not really asking much. And someone may ask you, you know, do you believe so-and-so will come to work on time? And you say, well, yeah, I, yeah I, I believe that they will. But let's say that as that person works for you over the course of years, you learn much more about that person. The relationship you have with that person grows. And because you learn more about them, if somebody comes and asks you the same question later, do you believe so-and-so is going to come to work on time? You go, oh, absolutely. Well, it's not that you really believe that one thing more. It's because you've come to know that person. Many more things about that person. Many more things you can trust about that person that develops their character. And as a result, you, you do have greater confidence in those things. And so it's, it's a slight... Um, difference in categories, but I do believe that it's important because on the one hand, if we somehow think, I just need to believe harder kind of a thing, uh, we, we contend, and some people I think do this, we, we tend towards just trying harder to believe something instead of really focusing on our growth as believers and recognizing how it is that we grow as Christians. So let me illustrate that for you. So again, we know just the basic idea of faith is that faith is the persuasion or the conviction that something is true. So consider these three things. We, we, I would say that we know that two plus two equals four. Jesus' tomb was empty the Sunday after his crucifixion. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So either you're convinced those things are true or you're not convinced those things are true. No one says, I believe that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. I just really need to believe that more. Well, either you believe it or you don't. There's, there's no degree to that. There's no variation. Uh, they're just single propositions. So turn, if you would, to Mark 9, because I want to look at a couple of passages so we can kind of clear up maybe any um, inconsistency we may have or thoughts we may have so we can really grasp what we, what we mean, what we're talking about when it comes to having faith. So this is a famous passage where we, there's a man that will show up and he will say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So we need to look at that and try to make sure we can understand that. So Mark chapter 9, and I'll begin reading in verse 20. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, 
foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Well, as we think about that, I think we can say there's one thing he he wasn't trying to say. He wasn't saying, Lord, I believe, help me because I don't believe. I don't think he's saying that. I, I don't believe that, I don't think that belief and unbelief can coexist at the same time. Now, this is where we want to make sure we get real strict in our categories, because some people say, yeah, but, you know, sometimes I may have doubts. Well, you can have doubts, but that doesn't mean that you're not believing. Okay, either we believe it or we don't believe it. And then I think our degree of certainty grows the more that we come to know Christ. So Christ is always going to be the focal point here, not how hard we believe something. And again, that significance, I believe, is important. Again, notice in the story that Jesus said, if you can, or if you can believe. Why didn't Jesus just say, if you believe? I think that Jesus' remarks in verse 23 are in response to the man's statement that he made. The man preceded his request with a statement of his uncertainty as to whether Jesus could heal his son. Verse 22, it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. So Jesus, in a sense, turns the table on the man and says, if you can believe. So the man expressed his conviction that Jesus can indeed heal his son, but no degree of faith in that proposition is possible. Either you believe it or you don't. He was persuaded that Jesus could heal his son. So I think what the father was trying to say is something like this. Lord, I do believe you can heal my son. Help my vulnerability to unbelief. So it's not that belief and unbelief are coexisting at the same time. He recognizes the weakness, and we would say it this way, he recognizes the weakness of his flesh. One of the ways we overcome the weakness of the flesh, spiritually, is by again growing in our understanding of the Word of God. That's why the Word of God is so central to everything that we do, and we would consider it central to the Christian life. It's not just that we just read the Bible because somehow magically it will help you or maybe it makes you feel better about yourself. Remember, the Word of God is active. It's alive. It really will do something in you. It is a tool that the Holy Spirit uses to to continue to transform you into the image of Christ. Continue to transform the way that you think, the way that you feel, the way that you respond to the world around you. There's very real growth that's taking place. And again, in the same way that when we eat food, especially when you're eating food that's nutritional, it really is going to do something for your body. You you don't always see it, and we definitely don't think about it. But sometimes we know you may go to the doctor, and he he may proclaim that you don't really eat very well, do you? Because you have all these other other issues. You You need to eat better. You need to get more nutrition because of A, B, and C, or whatever it may happen to be. So the Word of God is very much like that. And I do think that there are times that it, it, we, we live our lives as if we, we don't really believe that. Because it doesn't seem to be that important to us. I mean, you know how hard it is to miss a meal. 
you know, to say, well, you know, there's this, I guess one of the, there's a lot of different ways people are trying to lose weight. One of those things is what's called intermittent fasting. And the idea with intermittent fasting is, is you don't eat for 18 to 20 hours. And, uh, uh, and then there's a small window where you eat. And you do that every day. And a lot of people do that and they're losing weight. Just try it tomorrow. You start thinking about food a lot. Even if you always skip breakfast, you're now going to be skipping lunch as well. And somebody will encourage you and say, drink water. That just sounds yuck, right? Who wants to do that? And so you think about food a lot. So what appears to be very easy on paper, oh, that's easy. Oh, I can do that. Well, then do it <laughs> for more than one day. Do it for three, four, five, six days, and then maybe three, four, five, six weeks. Now, because normally the people who say that it works well have not been doing it for two days. Have they been doing it for two months? And they say, oh, this works well. So it can be kind of difficult. So when it comes to this, this, this you know, the, the spiritual feeding of the soul, even though it's a very basic principle, it's something that we can easily overlook. And in a sense, kind of, we wouldn't say it this way, but by our actions, it's kind of like we actually believe we can do okay without it. I can get by without it. And we believe then that because the next several days or maybe even the next several weeks kind of physically goes well, we think that reinforces our belief. Our belief that I can get by without it. Haven't had an argument with anybody in two weeks. Things were going great at work for the last two weeks. Now, we don't, we don't always, we don't, you know, we don't say the sentences to ourselves out loud, but we think it, like, quick, goes right through there. There's, there's nothing going on that will push us back, naturally, to the Word of God. Because we think we're doing fine without it. And then sometimes, let's say things begin to blow up, some people still, in their stubbornness, are going to try to kind of gut through it. Uh, others may then, in a panic, go back to the Bible and then try to catch up. I haven't read my Bible, so I'm, I'm going to read it for six hours today. Like, like somehow that would do, do, you, do you good. I, it, still, I'd rather you read the Bible for six hours uh, and not to read it at all. But the point is, is, you can't make up that way. You just need to get back in the habit and start eating. Uh, and eating correctly. If you did a fast for three days, a real fast, just only water. And, or let's say, yeah, you go three days. And then, you know, you, usually by then you don't really feel all that hungry. But let's say then at the end of those three days, you just gorge yourself. Yeah, I'm, I don't want to be gross, but you're going to throw up. It's just, it's, you're not going to, your body is not going to be able to get all the nutrition out of what you just ate because you've just overdone it to us, just overwhelming, and now you just have a mess. And so we want to make sure that we, that we have the right understanding of the Word of God and its importance to us as believers. So again, the fact that the, the man approached Jesus with the words, if you can do anything, at least shows us that he was tentative. And... If you kind of read the whole story in context, the disciples have been unable to heal his son. And uh, so I think that helped him to kind of have doubt as to whether or not Jesus would be able to do anything. So again, when Jesus spoke with authority to him, and you remember that when Jesus spoke, he always spoke with authority. Now, I know sometimes we imagine this, you know, sometimes, you know, maybe you picture in your mind or you hear in your mind uh, the voice of James Earl Jones, you know. The Lord spoke with, I can't do him, but you know, the Lord spoke with authority. We think that's what that means. It doesn't always mean that, all right? It doesn't always mean the person had a commanding voice. Jesus may have. I, I personally don't think that he did because I think there was nothing about him physically that would naturally draw the natural man to Jesus. 
However, the sometimes speaking with authority means the individual is speaking with great confidence because of the knowledge that they have. And so Jesus spoke with that, with, you know, with, again, this authority that everyone recognized when he spoke. And so when Jesus spoke with authority, it gave that man confidence. He understood what Jesus was saying. And so when Jesus said, if you can believe, I believe the man at that moment has sufficient evidence uh, from Jesus himself that his doubts vanished and he believed that Jesus could indeed heal his son. So the man believed at that moment, but he understood or realized that his belief was fragile and that he might fall into doubt once again. And again, we sometimes approach new believers or we think about new believers in the same way, right? We would say their faith may be fragile. So what we don't say to them is, look, you just got to tell yourself every day, I believe, I believe. No, okay, that's what the world says when they want you to break certain habits and they don't know who God is. Right, what we say, what we, what we indicate to them is you need to get what? In the word of God. You need to read through the scripture. Because our belief is that the word of God is going to feed, in a sense, their faith. Because they're going to come to know Christ. They're going to come to know God better. And so again, that's really very important. Uh, and, and, and you'll see as we lay this groundwork why that would be so important in helping us to understand then these gifts that he's going to be talking about. Uh, again, the healing and different things that we're going to be getting into. Uh, it'll help us, I think, understand that maybe much more differently than what you've read in some commentaries, but I believe in a way that's much more biblical, maybe in a way, in a sense, is more practical, uh, and, and I think it'll help us tremendously. John Grasmick uh, says this. He says, The Father's uh, response was immediate. He declared his faith, I do believe. But again, he also acknowledged his weakness, and that is what is meant when he said, help me overcome my unbelief. So again, you and I may experience this in times of a crisis. We vacillate between confidence in what God has promised and a lack of confidence. And so again, if, if, if someone in your family is in a tragic accident, all right, and, and we are, you know, we're, we're concerned about that. We're concerned for if they're going to recover. Are they going to even live through it? Are they going to recover fully? Those types of things. Normally, we don't say, well, you just got to really believe that God can heal. Now, usually what the focus is, is you can trust Christ. I don't know if Christ is going to heal. We know that Christ definitely can, absolutely. Can heal him completely or her or, or ensure that they're not going to die. But the trust that we have is not just trusting the, the statement, Jesus can heal them. It's trusting him. And so that's why our knowledge of God needs to expand. That's, that's part of maturing and growing up as, in, as, as believers. In fact, if you go through the New Testament, through the Gospels, you know, you come across Peter. Peter was the only man in the world who's ever walked on water except for Jesus. He believed that Jesus would keep him on top of the water. And Jesus bid him to come and join him. That's over in Matthew 14. But moments later, he stopped believing. He took his eyes off of Jesus and became alarmed by the waves and the wind. And so he ceased believing and he began to sink. And so then he cried out, Lord, save me. So sometimes our faith is like that. And so I've mentioned this before, and we need to think about it in these terms, that it is really important that even when things are going, maybe more so when things are going well in your life, that you do not allow anything to crowd out your intake of the word of God. Because you are preparing yourself for the future. What does the future hold for all of us? Pain, suffering, and misery. 
Uh, I'm, not trying to be, I'm not trying to be a prophet of doom, but we do live in a world that's cursed by sin. We live in bodies of the flesh that are, that are going to fall apart. We, we are friends with individuals who in the flesh are going to betray us or, or fail us in some way. And so in the same way that athletes train their bodies, like, you know, football, greatest sport in the world, I think. But, you know, you train your body, you train your body to, for the beating you're going to take. It's a weird thought if you think about it. You know, we want our sons to play a sport where they're going to get beat. All right? But the idea is that we want their bodies to be trained to take the pounding. Well, what do you do? Well, you prepare for that when you're not being pounded. You, know, you don't ever see, whether you're watching NFL or college or high school, you never see kids playing football and one of them just gets nailed from someone else where they run to the sidelines and start lifting weights. Oh, I just got to get in better shape you know, so I can take the pounding. We all would kind of laugh and say, well, it's a little late now. Well, you're just going to make yourself more tired uh, when you go back out there. You're really going to get pounded. So the idea then is, is with the Word of God is that we think of it in that way and that we recognize again it's important. Turn to Luke 17. Luke chapter 17. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. Jesus is speaking in verse 1. And it says, And he said to his disciples in Luke 17, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So what did the disciples mean when they said to Jesus, increase our faith? Because they said that in direct response to Jesus telling his disciples to repeatedly forgive those who sin against them. That was the context. He said, you need to repeatedly forgive those who sin against you. And he says, and they say, increase our faith. So it could be that the disciples were asking something like this. Lord, please help us to believe you about this. It may have been hard for them to believe that acting in this way was a good idea. It goes contrary to at least human thinking to do this. And so they were doubting the wisdom of what he had said. Or possibly they doubted not the wisdom of it, but their ability to do so. I'm not too sure I can do that. So increase our faith would then be a cry for Jesus to change their thinking so that they see themselves as capable of doing this. And so I think that that's a good way to look at this because, again, remember that I believe that faith and the effect of, of our faith on ourselves, so to speak, affects the whole, or affects the whole person. Okay, the mind, the will, the heart. So it, so it can affect your thinking. So it's not just a feeling you have. Because sometimes, again, we go the way of the world. And so somehow we think that if I feel strongly about certain things of God, my faith is strong. But here the idea is, I think, thinking. I need to, I need to, to think through this and recognize that the wisdom that Christ is giving me, and I need to act on it. It doesn't really matter how I feel about it. I need to think it through, and I need to incorporate this into my life. So maybe it would look like this. Lord, this is a revolutionary teaching, which it was. We believe what you are saying is what God wants us to do. Teach us more. 
so we can know uh, and believe and do the will of the Father in even more areas of our lives. So again, the idea of increasing our faith is, is that I, I'm trusting him, I'm learning more about what he's saying, that it's, it's not just this isolation of forgiveness, it's all of these things he wants us to do, and how we relate to other people, and how we view what they do, and how we understand life. So again, the apostles were not asking for a greater degree of faith in just this one proposition. No, I think they were asking Jesus to expand their belief system so that his teaching in Luke 17 would naturally fit their worldview. And when I say that, that, meant their, that would mean their worldview would be changing. Uh, but again, that it would fit there. But lastly, I want to look at this. There's five times where this phrase is used, O you of little faith. I uh, have all those references there in your notes, I believe. Uh, in all five passages, Jesus rebuked the disciples for having little faith. Uh, the Greek word that is used there is really not found in what we would call classical Greek. It's not found in the Septuagint. Remember, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Uh, it appears to be a word that was coined by Jesus. It's only used uh, these five times in the New Testament, four of them in Matthew and one in Luke. Leon Morris says this, Wherever this term occurs in the New Testament, it is always applied to the disciples. More might have been expected of them. And that's his reasoning for why this term would be used uh, for them. In each of the five occurrences of this Greek word, the issue is, again, not a need for greater faith in some single proposition that the apostles already believed, but the need for the apostles to believe things which they have not yet come to believe. Remember, that's part of Christian growth, right? We don't know everything that God has said. You know, I've, you know when I became a believer, I submitted myself to Christ and all that he said. I had no clue what he said except for a few things. But the more that I learn about what he says, I believe those things. I'm trusting in those things, trusting that everything he's saying is the truth. And the more things that I learn, the more I'm trusting him. Because I know more about him. Turn to the, to the example in Matthew 6, if you would. Look at Matthew 6, and I'll begin reading in verse 25. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So the issue here that the disciples needed to believe, which was, which was a new proposition for them, is that God will take care of all of their basic needs in life as long as they are seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. That's what, they, that's what he's calling on them to believe. That God will care for all of their needs. If you think about it, go back to the Old Testament and God's dealing with Israel. Isn't it exactly what God was asking them to do? Now, they still had the work and farm and take care of sheep and all that. And they still had enemies and they could have an army they could call whenever they needed it. But in the end, what did God tell them? 
That he would protect them from the enemies. They needed, they needed to believe what, that God would protect them from their enemies. And we see that when Israel lived that way, he did. We also know that God said that he would make sure the land would produce for them. This arid land they lived in would produce these wonderful crops. And, and if they lived in obedience to what he said, and again, this obedience was about having faith in God. Obedience and faith go hand in hand. And so, if, and so if they lived as a nation trusting in God, they would see it in the way that God provided for them. And it's very clear when you read through uh, the life of Israel that when, they, when their crops weren't doing well, it was not because there was no rain. It's because of their sin. God makes that clear over and over again. And so the way they respond to God, the way they follow God, had everything to do with how prosperous they were as a nation, including day-to-day. Day-to-day living. And so here, Christ really is just repeating for them in a different way what they needed to appropriate or incorporate in their lives as those who believed in the Messiah. So their little faith was the fact that they did not yet believe the Father could meet their basic needs as long as they served Him. Leon Morris again says this, Worrying shows that one has little faith in what God can do. Another commentator said this, Jesus is not seeking to show that worry is useless, but that it is at bottom a token of lack of faith in God. Notice that he doesn't speak of some lesser degree of faith, but a lack of faith. Sometimes for us, when we are going maybe through financial difficulty, we begin to worry about things. There can be lots of causes about that. A lot of, a lot of things can bring that about. Normally, we're, either we haven't been living right and we're looking at the flesh or we're over-focusing on, 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 what's, on the circumstances. But if you are a growing believer, I'm not saying that you would not have some kind of concern, but the, the, the worry and the fretting, you really won't experience it because you have absolute confidence in God. It's not that you feel more faith in God. It's, I know God. I know what God has said. I know what God has said about a lot of things. I know that God is faithful. I'm convinced, I've told you stories before, I'm convinced that God did for, for our family small things to reinforce that he can be trusted. I think I told you the story that when, when my wife, when I, the first church I pastored was a small church in, in Hawaii. And, and there was a parsonage and we moved in and, and it had furniture and the kitchen was, was, was completely stocked. Uh, silverware place, whatever. And so there was a couple we knew, a Christian couple that got married and they, I mean, they hardly had anything. They were, they were, we, we thought we were poor. They were more poor than we were. And so we had been given a set of silverware, really nice silverware. And I said, yeah, that's, we need to give that to them. I mean, we couldn't go buy anything, but we had that, which was of great value. And we talked about it, you know, we kind of him and hauled, but we, we gave it to them. And of course, after a while, you, you, know, you kind of forget about it. Well, several years later, I became a jail chaplain. My wife would tell you I was always taking on new jobs that paid less money. And so uh, we moved uh, to the Big Island, and uh, we got in the house, and we're moving in. Of course, we've got really nothing. And on the day that we were moving in, which really wouldn't take that long because it wasn't much to move, uh, this lady came over, and the very first gift we received was a set of silverware. For some reason, she had two sets and said she'd had two sets for years and had no idea why. And she says, it is for such an occasion as this. And so she was a Christian. She knew why we were there, which was to start the jail ministry. And I talked to my wife and talked talk to the, the kids. 
and kind of reminded them of what we had given away several years before, which we really thought nothing about after a while. And I said, this is God letting us know he's going to take care of us. And he did. And I didn't know that then, and none of us knew it then, but there was a time coming within 90 days where I wasn't going to receive a dime for two months. Because the money didn't get a lot, of, a, lot of, you know, a lot of stuff into that. But basically, I got no pay. I had only $10 in the bank account, and we made it for two months. It was, it was just simply one miracle after another. God was letting us know with the silverware, he could be trusted. And it was amazing. When I think back to that time, I don't remember a time when any of us were ever really panicking. It was just the Lord was just so good to us. Not only in supplying our need, but I believe in, in the comfort of his presence. So here back in this passage, these li the little faith that's spoken of in these passages, again, doesn't refer to some lesser degree of faith in a single proposition. It means that while the disciples believed many correct things about Jesus and the Father, they still had plenty more to learn and to believe. They needed to believe more truths, not to increase their degree of faith in the truth they already believed. So two things I want to leave you with. A corrective for our lack of faith. It, it's simple. Number one, you cannot believe what you haven't heard. And so you and I need to make sure we feed regularly on the Word of God in terms of personal reading, meditation, church attendance, which I don't mean church attendance because it's magical, but the idea of that we are together collectively reading and studying the Word of God and uh, mentoring or being mentored and mentoring others in the Word of God. That, that's what we need to do. We do that and that little faith thing that's being dealt with here, that's going to be taken care of in our life. Let me read to you from the first Psalm. We covered this in great detail this morning. Well, verse 1 we did. But anyway, let me read to you uh, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. And all that it does, and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So your faith, or as, as one commentator said, he said, the constellation of your beliefs. I just thought that was a really cool way of saying it. The constellation of your beliefs grows the more that you understand and believe what God says. Secondly, remember this, that faith without works is dead. Once you believe something, we must put what we believe into practice. James says three times in James chapter 2 that faith without works is dead. When James speaks of faith, he's not talking about faith in Jesus for eternal life. He's talking about putting into practice whatever we believe from God's word. For example, in verses 15 and 16, show that one belief we ought to put into practice is being convinced that it is more blessed to give than receive. James means that anything we believe in the Bible, if it is not wedded to works, is unprofitable for us. So the issue is not saving faith without works, it is faith without works. Again, faith is a conviction that something is true. There can't be degrees of faith for the simple reason that faith is a conviction that something is true. One is either convinced or he is not yet convinced that something is true. And I think this will help us, and we understand this, 
when we begin to look more at these gifts. Because one of the questions that I have in my mind is this. When it comes to the use and the exercise of spiritual gifts, is that experienced by those who are not growing in their faith? Just a thought. Just a question. I know what we would like the answer to be. I'm not sure we can say what the answer is in a dogmatic way. But the idea here is that there is this expectation by God that when it comes to these things that he is graciously giving us, that we are not passive recipients, I guess in the, in the way that we are really when it comes to salvation, which even in that, even though we are passive, we are exercising the faith he's given us. But he expects us to continue to exercise this faith he's given us, and he expects that faith in us to grow. There's an expectation. He will help us. He will strengthen us. He will move us along the way. But there's an expectation that you and I will move in our lives as Christians, that we will do, and that we will not just sit back and just wait for the Lord to perform magic for us. That there, there is this, this interconnection, interconnection, there is this, this cooperation. It's not that God needs that, because God is going to grow you as a believer one way or the other, but there is this desire that, that there is this, because there is great joy in that for us. And there's, there's a great embracing of life uh, for us as believers. And perhaps when we get a good grasp of this uh, and we begin to apply these things to our lives, we then may experience and see a greater influence that we will have on others. Because we will be living as people of faith. We will be people of faith. Instead of being a people who should have more faith than we do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you, Lord, again for putting up with our weakness, putting up, Father, with our laziness, putting up with many things, Father, that we are. We know, Lord, that it is your desire that we grow, that we enjoy and experience life, and we ask, Lord, that, that you would help us because we need your help so desperately. I do know, Lord, that there are some here today that perhaps they have convinced themselves they have faith in Christ. But there's no evidence of any faith. There's no growth of faith. And Father, for many individuals, the reason why there's been no growth is because faith has never been truly exercised in Christ. They know about Christ and they know about the gospel. There's been no trust. Father, I ask that you would, that you would help them, that you would assist them to evaluate their life, to, that your spirit would convince them of their need of Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would soften their hearts and move in them, Father, toward yourself. Draw them to you, Lord, with great tenderness of affection. And we pray that they would feel the heaviness of their sin and separation, and they would believe in Christ. Perhaps begin to understand the reason why their faith has seemed so weak is because there was none there at all. And Father, there may be some here today that, that we understand exactly what is meant by little faith. Help us, Father, to realize again that you don't condemn us, you're not going to throw us away. But that you have made provision for us. You have created for us a banquet for our soul. And we ask, Lord, that you would motivate us where we are not motivated. And that is to seek out your word. 
And I pray, Lord, that for each one who even begins in a meager way to apply these things to their lives, how I ask that you would bless them tremendously and that you would encourage their hearts. And Father, for those who may, on a regular basis, partake of your word, I pray that you would prevent them from ever looking upon others in a cynical way because they are not in the word as maybe they are or as they think they should be. Help each one, Father, in that situation to be an encouragement to others, to coach them along, to help them, that they may experience the wonderful and the marvelous blessings, Father, of having our souls fed by your word. Again, we thank you, and we do ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.